so much for your good singing today. Let's open our Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 7. The book of Acts, chapter 7. We've been talking for the last few weeks about certain biblical characters. Abraham, David. Today we're going to jump over into the New Testament and talk about a man completely converted. I think you know who he is even before we mention him. A person that was one day going in one direction and the next day his whole life was radically changed. He started going in the other direction as fast as he was going in his original direction. His name is Saul of Tarsus. And we're introduced to him in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 51. Stephen is preaching away. And he's coming to his conclusion. And uh, this type of a conclusion is not suggested uh, to promote goodwill. He looks at his audience and he said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He said, Your fathers had a problem listening to God and so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, that's Messiah, Christ, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. How's that for an invitation? Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it? God gave you the law, you didn't keep it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and he ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul. You know, we most of the time in the church talk about the great Apostle Paul. Well, this was his name at one time. He was known by Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, And uh, they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Does that sound familiar to you? And when he had said this, he fell asleep, he died. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. We find here a man who is crazed to destroy the church, Saul of Tarsus. He was probably named Saul after the first king of Israel, Saul. You know, God uses all kind of people. If you just look around in the church today, you'll see that. Each and every one of us in this church is different. Uh, God made us that way. He didn't want us to be the same. He wanted us all to be different. But he uses us all together in some special way to serve him. Uh, He uses 
most of the time common people because the Bible says in Mark 12, 37, the common people heard him gladly. Let's read this together. The common people heard him gladly. We know why. We know why common people hear Christ gladly because their life was so painful. They love what Jesus said. Jesus said, listen, I want you to pray for your daily bread. They understood that. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. They needed a Savior like him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble are called. For you see your calling... What's the next verse? The Scripture says here that they were... Not many people were wise who were called. It doesn't say that there weren't any. It said uh, that there were not many powerful people. Uh, there weren't, weren't many of them. Uh, the successful people of the world and the well-taking-care-of people uh, oftentimes are preoccupied with the results of their affluence and uh, their achievement. Uh, they have little time for God because they've create, created many of their own gods. But not so with the common people. They had plenty of time. Those people followed Jesus and they listened to every word that he spoke. But every now and then, God reaches down into life uh, of a of a person who has climbed the ladder of success, and that's Saul of Tarsus. He climbed the ladder of success. He was successful in his profession and in his pursuit. Uh, probably he was ready to enjoy the midlife crisis. Uh, I understand about this time that he was called. He was about 30 years of age. They didn't live very long back in that time. Life expectancy was probably 45 years of age or 50. So he was, uh, if you stretched it, midlife. And uh, he was probably thinking, you know, now I've studied, I've worked so hard, I'm going to sit back and enjoy the fruit of my labor. Uh, kind of like our missionary that we recently sent to China, uh, Tom and Ivy Harper. Uh, they were ready to enjoy their midlife crisis. Uh, they had worked hard, received their education. They had, uh, had landed a good job. And uh, he had on his mind a Harley and he just thought, you know, this is the way to go out in life. Just get this Harley and enjoy it. And somebody talked him into going to China on a short-term missionary trip. And that's all it took. When he saw China, his heart was broken for the masses of people who have never heard the name of Jesus. He came home. He said, no Harley for us. Uh, we're going to China. Now, that would rock your world, wouldn't it? That would rock your world. Uh, they've been working hard to learn the language over there. Uh, they've been working hard to become a part of society over there and to bring people to Christ. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Paul here. Let's just think a little bit about his past life. You know, whenever I read about Paul in the Bible, uh, I read of a man that pursued life with excellence. You know, he did everything meticulously well. Philippians 3, chapter, five and, chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says this. Let's read it, okay? For I was born into a pure-blooded Jewish family that is a branch of the tribe of Benjamin. So I am a real Jew if there ever was one. What's more, I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. And zealous, yes. In fact, I harshly persecuted the church. 
and I obeyed the Jewish law so carefully that I was never accused of any fault. I'll tell you, this was a meticulous person. When you go back into the Old Testament and you look at the law that was given, he said, listen, I've kept it all. Nobody was able to point a finger at me and ever accuse me of any fault. Uh, this person was tremendous. In Acts chapter 22, verse number 3, uh, he said, I was a Jew born in Tarshish, a city of Calicia, and I was brought up and educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. Now that's big. At his feet, I learned to follow our Jewish laws and customs very carefully. Uh, Saul was growing up in a small town, Tarsus, and he went to the big town to get his education. He enrolled in the school of Gamaliel. That's like somebody in Pittsburgh saying, listen, I went to Carnegie Mellon, by the way. Uh, he went to the school of Gamaliel. He got his Ph.D. there. It was, Gamaliel was the most famous rabbinic teacher of his day. He, he was actually known as the glory of the law. Can you imagine a man known with a title like that, the glory of the law? Well, we think in addition to that that Paul ascended to the seat of the Sanhedrin as well because in Acts 26.10 he says, I cast my vote against them. And so he went as high as you can get, you know, the Supreme Court is pretty high. That's where he went. But, you know, and it all looked good. He was working his way up the ladder of success, and all of a sudden something went wrong. His zeal turned to violence. I, I know, well, I don't know all the reason why, but I know one thing is as much as he knew about the Bible, he didn't know that there were two lines of ancient prophecy concerning the Messiah. And if you could learn this, this would be like one of the major lessons that you could learn as a Christian. Because you can explain this everywhere you go and people's eyes can be opened up to the things of the Lord. In the Old Testament, there are these two powerful streams of prophecy. The first stream is the stream of the suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised for us. The chastise, the, his punishment was laid upon him for you and for me. Uh, he never saw that in the Old Testament. And I guess if you were living in his world, Rome had conquered their country and was just taking taxes away from these people and treating them so uh, so so bad, uh, you would be looking at the other stream of prophecy in the Old Testament, the stream of the king. The king is coming in power and great glory to defeat the enemies. And so how could the, this new group, this new sect in Israel be right? How could a group of people be so foolish to follow a man who was dead, who had been crucified on the cross, People ask me all the time, you know, why are there so many denominations? Have you ever heard that question? Probably you've asked it yourself. Why is this church different and this church is different? They're all different and they all say they, they have the truth. It's confusing. Sometimes people just throw up their hands and say, oh, I quit. I can't figure this out. Well, you know, it's always been that way. It really has. Uh, when you go back into Judaism in the Old Testament, they had their different branches of Judaism, sects we call them. There were the Pharisees. They were the legalists. They had to do everything just exactly the way the Bible said to do it or 
they made life miserable for everybody. Their life was miserable. In fact, in the New, New Testament, Peter said, don't lay this burden on me. I can't handle this. Uh, they were the, what they call the legalists. And then there were the Sadducees, and, and they looked at it in a more broad perspective. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. Uh, and it's a good way to remember who they are. They were a sad group of people. They didn't have much hope for a future. And then there were the Essenes. Remember them? They were a communal group down by the, down by, um, the Sea of Galilee, and they wrote the Dead Sea what? Scrolls. And, uh, boy, they, they thought they were right. And then there were the Herodians, and they were more political. They thought they were right. And now there was this new group called the Nazarenes. This, another sect, the Nazarenes, Jesus from Nazareth. Uh, we had this cute little girl many years ago that attended our Sunday school. She was a great kid. And, and uh, through a series of events, her, her relatives... Uh, somehow she went back to the Nazarene church. She originally was the Nazarene church, and she came here, and then she went back. And sometime later, she saw one of the other little kids in our Sunday school. She, she said, well, you know, those Baptists never told me that Jesus was a Nazarene. Well, I'm here today to tell you he was. I want to go on record. Jesus was a Nazarene. Uh, this was a a sect that no one could understand. How could a group of people follow somebody who died upon the cross? Well, they, they made an excuse for it. They said his disciples came and stole the body away to look like he was resurrected from the dead. Uh, but these people were convinced that he was alive. And so Saul of Tarsus went off the deep end and he did a crazy thing. He said, I'm going to stamp out these Christians. I'm going to stamp them out. I'm going to take them on single-handedly and eliminate them. But there was this divine, defining experience in Stephen's life and in Paul's life is when they met each other in this event of which we just read in the New Testament. You've heard the statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is. You know, if you study history, uh, people have always had to seal their faith in their blood and it seems like every time a martyr would die for the cause of Christ, that many more people would rise up and take their place. And so in Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen died. He sealed his faith in his blood. And the church was on the run, and that's what you and I would do too. If one of the members of our church were taken and stoned right in front of us, and Saul of Tarsus were here on the scene, and he came up to the church office and said, Listen, give me your membership role. This is not an advertisement for the membership class. Give me your membership role. And he took it and he says, I'm going to go down. I'm going to visit every one of those homes and I'm going to put them all in jail. You know what you would do and what I would do? We'd be running into each other, leaving town. I know I would. You'd be behind me. I'd be the first one out of town. I'd be, tr I'd be trying to protect my family. And that's what happened here. Uh, these people, Paul, Saul started persecuting the church and they began to leave. There was an exodus out of Jerusalem. Where were they headed? They were headed to Damascus, up in Syria. And the Bible says that when they went, they preached. That was interesting to me. Verse 4 of chapter 8. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. They were afraid, but not afraid to preach. You know, there's something in the heart of every believer that wants to preach. Now, I don't mean get up in a pulpit like this. I mean, when you get to work, I mean, there's something inside of you that wants to say to your buddy working with you, hey, listen, 
Jesus saves, buddy. I just want you to know that. I just feel compelled to tell you. Uh, if, there, if there is not that compulsion in your heart to do that, something is wrong with your salvation, man. Uh, the moment you become a Christian, you have this desire to share it with other people. This is a message to be told. This is a message to be heralded. And as, fr- as afraid of these people were for their life, they were not afraid to witness. They were not afraid to say, Jesus saved, he is alive. And so, uh, this was a church on the run. Damascus had become an asylum for Christians. Nazarene fugitives, they were there. So Paul said, listen, I've cleaned out Jerusalem. I know where they are. They're up in Damascus. And so I'm headed there on this journey of about six days. He had lots of time to think. You know, in our world, I think that's one of the major problems, don't you? People don't have any time to think. They blast off in the morning. You know, they wake up afraid. Afraid they've got this presentation they have to make. They have to make this appointment. They run there. They race there. They do this. They do that. And at night, they're completely worn out. They throw themselves down on the bed. They, they just can't. They, have, they haven't any, any time to think. Well... Uh, That was Saul on the road to Damascus. Look at chapter 9, please, verse 5. The Lord had appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. And in verse number 5, he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. How many people in our church this morning know what a goad is? You ever heard of that term? Anybody know? Several people in the first service knew. But I'm going to have to have them come and educate you. A, a goad was a, a big, long piece of steel with a very sharp point that they would put on a, a wooden handle and they would inspire the oxen whenever they got lazy or tired on to greater service. And you can imagine how well that worked. You know, here's this ox, he's out in the field, he's, he's making the, uh, doing whatever they do, and he, he says, listen, I'm tired of this. And the guy gets his thing out. No, you're not tired today. And he just continues on. The Lord says to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against my goadings. It's hard to you to, to resist my conviction. And so, you know, oftentimes people don't accept the Lord in the first hearing or the second hearing. I remember years ago we had a nice young couple come to our church. The girl was a Christian. She was trying to bring her boyfriend to Christ. He sat in this church for a year, and I thought to myself, why, you know, we make it so easy in this church to come to Christ. Why is it taking this boy so long? I could never figure that out. He was just wrestling through all these issues that were going on in his mind. And after about a year, he did accept Christ, and they have a wonderful family, and they're serving the Lord today. But it took him a long time. Usually, people don't accept the Lord in the first hearing, and and Paul could never figure this out. And so what I've done is put together a list of things that I think that piled up on him, things that really drove him to the Lord. First of all, it could have been the salvation of Barnabas. Barnabas in the Bible is... a is a very interesting character. It's believed that he was a friend of Saul's, maybe as a child. Uh, he could have been a student with Saul in the, in the school of Gamaliel. And you know, friends have great power other, on people. You know that if you can make a friend, you can bring them to Christ. 
If you go out here and you can befriend somebody at work or on the job, I'll listen. They're ready to come to God. You have earned the right to talk to them because you are their friend. And uh, it could be because Barnabas talked to him one day and said, Hey, listen, guess what happened to me? And he said, Oh, no, not you too. I, don't, I hate you people. Uh, he couldn't hate him. He was his childhood friend. And then I think another thing that really piled up on Paul was the, fa- the speech of his famous teacher, Gamaliel. If you read in Acts chapter 5, uh, there were a whole group of people ganging up in the apostles and they were trying to take their life. And you know what Gamaliel did? Gamaliel jumped right in the middle of the dispute and he said, Listen, leave these people alone. If their work is of God, you can't stop it. But if their work is of man, it will probably disappear. Leave them alone. And so here is Gamaliel, who is like the most eminent of all theological teachers, saying, leave the Christians alone. And one of his students, Saul, who's trying to kill them all. Well, and then there was that angelic face of Stephen when he died and his prayer for forgiveness. How could a person ever die like that? I think that haunted him. And then... He saw the Lord. Look at chapter 9, verse number 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if they found any who were of the way. That was another term for Christians. Nazarenes, people of the way. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they parroted that. They went out and said, listen, Jesus is the way. And that's, they couldn't get away from that message. So they started calling the people in the church the people of the way. They found any of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he journeyed. He came near to Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. It's interesting in the Bible to see the teaching of God and light The Bible says, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. How many times have you heard somebody said when they come to the Lord, I see the light now. The lights are on. Well, God is the light. Jesus said, I am the light. Uh, Here we find that this bright light shone round them from heaven and he fell on the ground and he heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Uh, Here was the miracle. Uh, All of these things were piling up in Paul's life. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back. The Lord himself revealed himself to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus in the form of this gigantic light. The Bible says God dwells in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. Why can't we see God? 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God alone is immortal, dwelling in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. And so every now and then what God does is he opens the heavens and shines his light down into the world. And he did that for Paul on the road to Damascus. This tremendous light. Jesus revealed himself in that manner to Saul of Tarsus. It's interesting uh, his response. He fell to the ground 
And he said, uh, who are you? Uh, that's the first question that he asked. And that's the question that our faith is based upon today. Uh, we come together to worship the Lord because of who Jesus is. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. Jesus claimed to be God and we believe it. Now, there are many people that do not believe that Jesus is God. They just believe he's a great moralizer, great teacher to be placed along in the same realm of other teachers that have lived on earth. But, uh, but we believe that he is God in flesh. And so that's why we come together. We would have, if we didn't believe that, we would probably never be here this morning. Uh, it, everything in the church is based upon who Jesus is and who he claims. I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Take your choice. Well, they could never find in him a lie. He is the Lord. The second question that he asked was very interesting, too. He said, who are you? And he said, I am um, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Uh, Jesus takes uh, persecution seriously. When somebody hurts the church, Jesus is our Heavenly Father. He gets involved. Uh, when somebody hurts you, he takes up for you. You just think, when somebody's after your kid, what's it do to you? Well, it, it's not pretty, is it? You want to step out right in the front. You want to protect all your kids, right? You want to protect, no matter how many you have, you're going to protect them. You're going to say, listen, if you're going to hurt them, you've got to come through me first. Well, I have the feeling that that's the way God is, too. Uh, and, so, and so he took personally the persecution that Saul was pouring out on the church, and he says, why are you persecuting me? Every single person who names the name of the Lord is a part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and God is our Father, and when somebody messes with us, they mess with God. That's why God says, listen, you don't have to fight back. Let me handle it. I know how to do this. This is my business. Your kid comes home from school and says, this kid hit me. You say, listen, let me handle this. I know how to do this. God did the same thing here. He said, why are you persecuting me? Uh, another thing he said, he said, who are you, Lord? The Lord says, I'm Jesus. And then he said in the next verse, what do you want me to do? That's the second question. First of all, we have to decide in our mind who God is. Is Jesus God? Then if he's God, then we need to serve him. And we need to ask the second question, what do you want me to do? I think God wants everybody who is in his family to do something. I think we are saved for a purpose. There is a mission that God has called you on. And when you find that mission, nobody can hold you back. You will run. And so you have to ask that question to God. What do you want me to do? God doesn't want us to be like spiritual vegetation. Just saying, boy, I'm a Christian and I'm saved by the grace of God. I'm justified in the sight of God. Look at me, how cool this is. God doesn't want us to be that. I'm just soaking in all these blessings for me. He was, saves us to do something for him. What do you want me to do, Lord? Now, I have a feeling if you ask Jesus that question, he'll tell you the answer. 
I don't think he wants to keep it a secret from you. And he says, now I'll tell you what I want you to do. He said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to go into Damascus. That's what I want you to do. And I want you to serve me before kings and before the Jewish nation and before Gentiles. That's what I want you to do. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 is a wonderful verse, and let's read it together. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You see the word pattern there? An example. Why did God, this is interesting to me, why did God take this man? Now listen, this man was a murderer. He had all kind of blood on his hands. He was a man that went off the deep end and did a whole lot of bad things. Why would God take this man and save him and forgive him for all those horrible things that he did? And then set him up as an example for you and me. Why would he do that? Now, this is the reason. Paul is saying, in effect, if God could save me and change my wicked life, he sure can change you. If God did this for me, he can do it for you. I've had many people say to me, you know, I've been so bad. I'm such a wicked person. I've hurt so many people. I've broken so many hearts. Not long ago, I met a man. And he said, you know, I was in Vietnam. And all the things I did over there, God will never forgive me. And I tried to stress to him that there is no sin beyond the grace of God. There is no pile of sins beyond the grace of God. No matter what you've done, God's grace is greater than your sin. The Bible says where sin abound, grace does much more abound. And so you think, man, I'm so powerful, I, I am so wicked, I am so unholy on the inside. You are the, exactly the person that God's looking for because you need him so bad. And he is the only one that can save your soul. He's the only one that can save you, save you from your wretchedness and your sinfulness. And we say, boy, how could God ever do that? Well, look, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul is a pattern. Are you worse than he? I don't think so. Well, I'll tell you what. He was so excited to have his sins forgiven, he was completely converted. A completely converted person is someone who's going as fast as they can in this direction, the wrong direction, and then turns around and goes as fast as they can in the other direction, and that's what he did. And so I'll tell you what. God just did a great and tremendous work in his heart. And he started to go out and preach to everybody about who Jesus really was. He finally discovered who Jesus was. Listen, you have to do that in your life. You have to figure out in your life who Jesus is. Now, if he's just a good teacher, you can kind of like slough him off. But if he's God, you can't. 
If he's God, you can't. And if he's God, why wouldn't you want to worship him? Because you're going to worship something in life. You're going to worship your job. You're going to worship your ego. You're going to worship yourself. You're going to worship some other person. What a waste. What a waste. When you could worship the God who spoke the world into existence. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Whoa, that's the kind of God we need to worship. So Paul went out and he started to tell his story how he was converted. He told it in chapter 22 and in chapter 26. And he was so excited about how God met him here on the road of Damascus that he never got over it. People tell me all the time, you know, I'd like to witness to somebody and bring them to Christ. But I don't know how. I don't know where you turn in the Bible. I, I can't find the verses. Listen, my, my advice to you is just tell your story. That's all. Tell your story. Tell your friend, hey, listen, my life was all messed up and Jesus met me and I'm a new guy. Just recently, one of the families of our church was telling about a story in their family. A young man and his new wife came to our church and we tried to reach him for Christ. We prayed for him. We witnessed to him. We tried to cut him off at every corner. We're pretty good at that sometimes in our church. Uh, we tried to bring him to Christ and he just slipped out of every little net that we set for him and he and his wife moved down south, and I thought, boy, that's a good place to move. There's a whole lot more Christians down there than there are up here. And through a series of events, he moved in near a person, I think it was his neighbor, who reached out and made a friend of him, and he was a Christian. And this is the good news. He recently accepted Jesus as his Savior. We couldn't corner him here. They did down south. The land of the Bible, a holy land. And his wife says, you know, I'm living with a different guy in my house. He's a new man. I don't know this guy. He's converted. That's what Jesus does for you. I'll tell you, when Jesus converts you, you are never the same. You can't be the same. You can't meet God and ever be the same. Uh, and so... And so the end of the story is here. He's, he went into the city of Damascus. He was blinded. And God called out to Ananias in Damascus to go to Straight Street, by the way, and uh, go over there and find this guy who's blind and minister to him and bring his sight back to him. And, and that's exactly what he did. And he went into the house. And in verse number 17, he says, Brother Saul, his, his name was called Saul, but now it's Brother Saul. You know, the family of God makes us brothers and sisters. You can't choose your brothers and sisters in the church. God does. He sends a new one in. He says, hey, by the way, here's a new brother for you. Last night in our Saturday night service, one of our wonderful guys, I love him a lot, uh, George Guthrie, he uh, was a Navy SEAL in Vietnam. He came in and he's got a big smile on his face, reached his hand out, and he says, Brother John! Uh, you know, we every now and then use that term in the church, Brother Bill. Uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. It means we're one family. Our, we have the same father. And so, and so here's Ananias, and Ananias is, is afraid because he knew Saul the way he used to be, but now he's willing to accept the forgiveness of God in Saul's life and accept him into the church. 
He says, listen, you're welcome here, Brother Saul. He received his sight, and look what happened in verse number 18. He went out and he was baptized. I want to encourage you today, if, if you have received Jesus, I want to encourage you to be baptized. Baptism will not save you. It's a sign to the world that you're a Christian. It's your message to the church and to the world that you're not ashamed of Christ. I'll tell you what, Jesus wasn't ashamed of you. He died on the cross for you. Baptism is not much to expect of you. Salvation is in your heart. But baptism is something public. It's your public demonstration of your faith. I gave my life to Christ as a young boy as a result of my mother's testimony. I was 11 years old when I gave my life to Christ. I knew that I was a sinner, that I had offended a holy God, and that if I were to die, I would go to hell because of my sin. I knew that. I had come to what we call the age of accountability. People say, well, what age is that? It's different in different kids. But I had certainly come to the age of accountability. I knew that I needed Christ. I knew that I needed a Savior. And uh, I accepted Jesus at age 11. But I didn't get baptized until I was 18 years of age. And when I was 18, I, I gave my life again, not in salvation, but in commitment to the Lord. I gave my life again. And I said, I'm going all the way with you, Lord, and I'm going to begin in baptism. And listen, when I, when I was baptized at age 18, my spiritual life came together and I never looked back. And maybe that's what you need today in the church. Maybe somewhere along in your childhood you accepted the Lord, but you've never followed Christ in baptism. Baptism won't save you. It's not, mean, it's not meant to save you. But it's an act of obedience to God. God wants you to blow the trumpet. Hey, listen, I'm a Christian and I'm not ashamed of it. And when you do that, something special happens to you. And I want to encourage you today. Sign on. Make it public. Salvation is in your heart. Blow the trumpet. Get baptized like Paul did and then serve the Lord for the rest of your life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, I'd like to invite you to come to Christ today. Maybe some, maybe circumstances have piled up in your life and you met this person and they're a believer and they told you about Jesus and this has happened in your life and God's opening your eyes. He's showing you your need for Christ. Listen, if you're a sinner, you need Christ and I've, ne I've never met a person who wasn't a sinner. There isn't one ever that's lived upon the face of the earth outside of Christ. Uh, if you are a sinner, you need Christ. You need to come to him in repentance and faith and turn from your sinfulness and turn to his forgiveness and invite him into your heart to be the Lord of your life, just like Saul did on the road to Damascus. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. If you're here today and you've never made that commitment to Christ, you can in the church. You can open your heart right now. You just get honest with God. Say, Lord, have mercy on me. I've sinned. I've offended you. I'm sorry. Come into my heart. Save me. I accept the free gift of eternal life, which you earned for me upon the cross. 
you're here today and you're saved, but you've never followed Christ in baptism, make that commitment today. I'm going to talk to the pastor. I'm going to talk to the church. I want to get baptized. I want to follow Jesus. I want to go all the way with him. I, I don't want to be a halfway Christian. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your word and how relevant it is for our life today, how needful. I pray that as we have the invitation today that around all across the room of our church today that decisions will be made for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand.